We've looked at the first four chapters of Galatians. We have two more to go before we finish this book. And the situation is this, simply put. Paul had gone to Galatia with some type of physical infirmity or ailment, but he was welcomed by the Galatians as an extraordinary person, like an angel or Jesus himself, with an extraordinary message. And they accepted the good news, the gospel. That is, they put their trust in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. But after Paul left, some men came to Galatia from Jerusalem. And they told the Galatians that what they heard from Paul was good enough, but it was incomplete. It was good, but something was missing. More was required. That is, that the men were to be circumcised and that the people were to keep the law. Essentially, they were to become Jewish proselytes. And then they would be a part of the people of God. Paul writes this letter to argue that what he preached, what they heard at first was right, that what the men from Jerusalem was teaching, uh, were teaching was not only wrong, but in fact a rejection of the gospel. You can't have Jesus and something else. And therefore they were rejecting Jesus and they were rejecting the Messiah. And in the language we find in chapter 1, if anyone, anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. In constructing his argument, Paul does some things that might be somewhat unexpected. First of all, for us, this is something that we're not familiar with. He uses a form known as the letter of rebuke. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And as we saw, went back in chapter 1, that this, this formula is something you find in this particular type of letter, a letter of rebuke. Um, the writer says to the one being addressed, you have failed to meet my expectations. And usually there's a list of the things that they have done wrong that need to be corrected. This, these are the matters we are coming to here in chapters 5 and 6. Secondly, Paul relies heavily on the telling of stories. And I've spent a lot of time on that, and so I will leave it at that, but we'll come back to it in a bit. Thirdly, he points to the reality of the triune God, what we call Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. After having spoken of justification and faith, I think we have an expectation that that will be his big, his big answer, his big counter to these people. But in fact, it is the matter of God, the nature of God. God is three in one. And we saw this in chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. We see Father, Son, and Spirit in this verse. The men from Jerusalem did not believe in Trinity, which is at the root of their problem, but there's more. And then fourthly, he pointed to union with Jesus as to that which... To, uh, as that to which we have been called. We see this in chapter 2, verse number 20, uh, the well-known verse. Excuse me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And thus, he is so distressed. I mean, the gospel, putting your faith, is not simply some mental assent, some transactional thing, I believe, therefore I get salvation, but it is in fact a personal relationship. And so he is really distressed that these people are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. As we saw when we went through this section, 
The identity of a Christian includes death, union, and love. Death, to review a bit, we see in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where Paul makes three similar assertions. I died to the law, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And though the statements are similar, they are not identical. But they point to the same reality that who we were, that is, who, the identity that we said was ours before, has to be set aside. And Paul is speaking here in the context of the men from Jerusalem, who their identity is, we're Jews. That's who we are. And Paul says, no, that's, that's got to be put aside, and you must identify yourself with Jesus the Messiah. This death is not the death of one's personality. It isn't the giving up of oneself. But rather, your identity as apart from God. Because this identity over here, in fact, is who you are apart from God. And you say, I've got to give that up because now I am going to be in union with Christ. For one who is a Jew, the old identity is gone. You can't say, I'm a Jew, I'm a person of the law. That old person no longer lives. There's a new person, a new identity. And this new person is to be united with Jesus the Messiah. And then there is love. At the end of verse number 20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the giving of oneself that we see in Jesus. It isn't merely some transactional event where Jesus dies and now we get to go to heaven as a result of it. This is the giving of himself that we might join ourselves with him. Because of his self-giving, we are united with him, we are sons of God, and we have the Spirit. And there is something else, even though it's not mentioned in chapter 2, that if Jesus gave himself for us in love, and he gave us a new identity, we are united with him, then we should be marked by this same self-giving love. And if you look at verse number, I think it's verse number 14 in chapter 5, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is how Paul constructs his argument. This is what he is saying to the Galatians. But underlying all of this is Paul's view of God's acting in history. What the gospel is all about. See, I think, and perhaps this is because of the way we've been taught, or maybe it's just the way we see things, oftentimes we see the gospel as good news now, that's about something that's going to happen later on. In theological terms, eschatology, what will happen at the end of time. But in fact, the gospel isn't about the end of time, it's about right now, the new age has begun, the new kingdom, and that will in fact progress until the end of time. It is about the coming of the Son and the Spirit. But it happens in the midst of history. And that's why I think chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 are, are so critical. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God the Father sent God the Son in the midst of history. Human history is moving along. And in the midst of history, at just the right time, God sent his son. 
Now, human history continues until the consummation, and that's part of the good news, but it begins here with the coming of Jesus, coming into human history. And so what we find in Scripture is what has been called an already but not yet formula. We must affirm that Jesus has already come, that he has already brought salvation. Something definitive has happened in human history. And as God's people, as the church, we live within, with the recognition of that reality. Jesus has come. But we also live with the, rea- the recognition of the reality that there is more yet to come. So we have the already and the not yet. Okay. So the already is of Christ's accomplishment, but the not yet is its fulfillment. And the verse came to mind uh, this morning as I was thinking through the sermon in 1 John chapter 3, where John says, um, Dear children, now we are children of God. That's the already. We are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, already, yes. But the not yet, we don't know what it's going to be like. I think if I've been asked one question more than any, people want to know what's heaven going to be like. I don't know. That's the not yet. What I do know is that Jesus Christ has come. And so there is to be this balance between what has happened and what will yet happen. But living when and where we do, I think we find reasons, consciously or unconsciously, to reject either one of these propositions, the already or the not yet. I think the modern part of us, the part of us that is marked by modernity, wants to reject the notion of the already. We hear this in Immanuel Kant, back in the 18th century, that we have arrived. We have come to maturity we have arrived. And therefore, the idea that somehow in Christ, you know, we need to be united in Christ for the already. Well, like, we have that. We have it already. The modern confidence is that we do not see through a glass darkly. We see things clearly. We understand we have arrived. And so there's part of us, if we're not careful, that we might just be a tad uncomfortable thinking of Christ as the already. As late as 1992, we hear this in the book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, by Francis Fukuyama. It's called The End of History and the Last Man. And he writes, What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history itself. That is the end, of ma- the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. In other words, we're here. We have arrived. Yeah, forget the not yet. We have arrived. Democracy is the answer. Well, since 1992, I think we might quibble with that and say, uh, we don't think that that's true. But there is that part within us that argues that We've done okay on our own. So when we speak of the not yet, modern man is uncomfortable. But the part of us that is postmodern, and there is a part of us that is, even though we don't know how to define it or to even call it postmodern, rejects the notion of having arrived. 
Uh, it rejects the already, and, and I think rightly so. But its solution is not good, because it says, no, we have not arrived, and we will never arrive. So it, in many ways, it also rejects the not yet, because it says, yeah, not yet, not ever will we arri- uh, arrive at what is intended. It embraces the not yet, but as an aimless, never will be, never get there type of not yet. In the postmodern way of thinking, there, are, there is no final word, there is no final judgment, no final text, no final interpretation, and there never will be. So in the postmodern way, there's never any consummation. And within our thinking, like it or not, because we are a part of this culture, I think both of these tug at us. And when we hear Paul talking about the already and not yet, one part of us rejects the already and one part of us rejects the not yet. Which makes it very difficult to be in union with Christ because that's what the gospel is all about. The not yet is an affront to enlightenment thinking. The already is rebuked to postmodern aimlessness. And when you do something like we did today at the beginning of our worship, when we read together the Apostles' Creed, people would say, well, no, that's, that's, too, that's too creedal, that's too structured. You can't really know what is right. Preaching is a proclaiming of a word that is true already and not yet. As God's people, as God's children, we must acknowledge that Christ has come, that Jesus is the crucified Messiah, that the new age has begun, that of the Son and the Spirit. And that explains why the age has begun, we still live in a time in which evil is done and not righted, when injustice is done and not corrected, because this isn't it. There is an already aspect, but there is a not yet aspect. There is still the final judgment when all things will be made right. Here we have temporary and partial words that can be spoken. The final word has not yet been spoken. It will be when we stand before God. And any confidence as Christians that we have in anything is in the fact of the hope that one day God will make all things right. That's why we work for justice here and now. We saw this in the series on just war. We know that that complete and full justice cannot be achieved in this age. That doesn't stop us from from fighting for justice. In the same way that we know perfection is not possible in this age, but it doesn't mean we're just, well, that's just the way we are. We're going to quit trying. No, the process has begun and it will be completed when Jesus comes back. We express this as already, but not yet. And this is what I hear in the letter to the Galatians. Paul can speak so definitively and so strongly about the coming of Jesus, about the union that we have with him, that our old identity is set aside. It dies. It is to be put to death. We become children of God. We become heirs of God. We have the Spirit of God living within us. And yet at the same time, Paul will write, until Christ is formed in you. He's saying to the Galatians, you are the children of God. You have been redeemed from the slavery of sin and idolatry. That's the already. But Christ is still being formed in you. That's the not yet. 
has not been fully formed in you. The men from Jerusalem would reject the already because the Galatians have not yet been circumcised. Once you are circumcised, then okay, you've arrived, you've achieved it. Um, They would not accept the not yet, but for all the wrong reasons. I suspect that if Paul were to write to us today, while the issues would be different, circumcision is a non-issue, at least as a religious issue, the emphasis would still be the same. The already and not yet, union with Christ, and unity in the church. As we saw in chapter 4, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just one more thing before we get to our text. Oftentimes when it comes to theological issues, you can say, well, the conservative part of the church, this is what they hold to. And the liberal part of the church, this is what they hold to. But when it comes to the already not yet, I think you find conservatives in both camps and you find liberals in both camps. That is, uh, particularly among charismatics, there's a very strong emphasis on the already, that you are already now the children of God and therefore everything belongs to you. That's why you can demand from God anything and he will give it to you. He has to because you're the children of God. It's all yours now. But then also within reform camps, I think with oftentimes the emphasis on theology, it's very much an already and a sort of a forgetting of the not yet. But then on this side, you also find what I would call the emergent church who seem to think that you can't really know anything for sure. Um, I think the church and we as individuals really will struggle with this for a while yet. Because we want one or the other. We want to be able to say, I'm a child of God, that's it, period, end of story. Or we want to say, well, we really can't know anything until Jesus comes back. But to, to hold both at the same times is really demanding. It's really, it's not easy to say, I'm a child of God. The Spirit of God lives in me. And I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. I do things I should not do. Um, it'd be much easier to take one or the other. But to embrace both at the same time is difficult. And I think apart from the grace of God, practically impossible. I am a child of God now. I am in union with Christ now. The Spirit of God lives in me now. But Christ is also being formed in me now. I am saved. I am being saved. And when Jesus comes back, I will be saved. I think we would prefer it to be much more simpler, just one or the other, black and white, you know, and to do both requires thought and effort. Today we come to chapter 5. And I want to look at the first six verses here of chapter 5. Paul writes, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. 
For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's begin with the first verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In writing this, some of the things that Paul has been dealing with come to mind. The notion of exodus, of freedom, of redemption, of being set free from slavery, freedom from slavery. But I think more importantly, just go to the previous verse. And this is where chapter divisions really sometimes are not helpful. Look, if you would, at verse number 31 of chapter 4. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then the next verse, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So the idea there of freedom. He's trying to make a point that as Isaac was the child of promise, quite different from Ishmael, who was the child of the slave woman, we are children of promise. And when the time came, Christ has set us free. I mentioned last Sunday that Sarah's name is not used in the book of uh, Galatians. Four times she is referred to as the free woman. Paul's trying to make a point. Isaac was the son of the free woman. Ishmael was the son of the slave woman. And we are like Isaac. We are not to be like Ishmael. Unless we choose to follow the law. And then we are like Ishmael, we are like Sinai, we are like the Jerusalem here on earth, obligated to keep the whole law. Whenever we speak of Jesus and freedom, I think invariably we have to recall the passage from the book of Isaiah. This is what Jesus read that first Sabbath after his time in the wilderness. Uh, He was asked to read during the service. And he picked up the scroll from Isaiah and unrolled it and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. It might seem like too much to ask, but why did Christ, the Messiah, set us free? Well, Paul tells the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Um, And this isn't double talk, it may sound like it. But what does Paul mean by freedom and setting us free? We have dealt with freedom in the past, um, when we went through the Exile series and the series on James. But we live in a time in which freedom is seen or defined as freedom from obligation. And if we're not careful, we will come to Galatians, in which Paul is rejecting the law, and we might say, that's what freedom is. I have no obligations. Um... No, I don't think so. Look at the rest of verse number one. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Apparently there is the possibility of losing that freedom, of becoming a slave again, of being enslaved. If we look at what Paul writes in this letter to the Galatians, we see that freedom can be seen in three things. First of all, it is a discontinuity, that is, it's a break from life in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul used the metaphors of the jailer, that we were kept as prisoners by the law, the metaphor of the pedagogue, that is a slave who is responsible to discipline the child, of a guardian, 
of a trustee, someone who's to take care of the state until the son reaches maturity. All of these point to life in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant as restrictive, as being partial, compared to life now in the New Covenant where there is freedom. It's not to say that life in the Old Testament was terrible or that it was without its benefits. But rather, Paul is saying that that time has come and that time is gone. It is gone. It was restrictive, it was partial, and now we have freedom in Christ. Life after the coming of the Messiah is going to be radically different than that of the Old Covenant. One commentator put it this way. Ask an eight-year-old child what he or she can or cannot do in school. There are certain things you're not allowed to do. Can't run in the halls, can't chew gum, can't yell. Now ask a college student what he or she can or cannot do. There's obviously a great difference. In the same way, we look at the Old Testament and we see great restrictions. And I mean, read the book of Leviticus, which for many people is, is very difficult. It seems so tedious. I think that's part of the point. That life in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was quite restrictive. And in Christ, we have freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The second thing about freedom, as Paul describes it in this book, is it is life in the Spirit. Paul will tell us in verse number 16, we'll get to it in a week or two, that we are to live by the Spirit. And then in verse number 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The life that we find in the New Covenant is marked by the activity of the Spirit of God in a way that is not found in the Old Covenant at all. This does not mean, I want to be clear, that in the Old Testament they had to follow rules and in the New Testament we don't. Then in the New Testament we can do whatever it is we want to do. After all, what Paul writes in chapter 5, verse number 16, is a command. What he writes here in verse number 1, stand firm, is a command. In verse number 14, and I've mentioned this already, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Okay, if the Spirit lives within us, if we have the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit and he lives in us, then how are we free from the law? It would seem like Old Testament law, New Testament spirit, which means we don't have to keep God's commandments anymore. Well, we know that's not true. We do have to keep his commandments. So what is the difference? What is freedom over here that did not exist in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant? We are free from the condemnation of the law. We saw this in chapter 3. Verse number 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But we don't have to go to chapter 3. Look at verse number 3 here in our text today. Chapter 5, verse 3. Again I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. 
The law condemns, because if you break one commandment, you've broken all of it. And what the law is, by definition, is condemnation. Obedience here and there is not good enough. You must keep the entire law. And I think the law points out abundantly clearly that we cannot keep the law. We cannot comply with its demands. It expects total compliance at every turn. And so in that sense, the law condemns us. But I think there's more than that. And we hear it in the first sentence of this letter in chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And Jesus does not simply rescue us and get us out of condemnation. He gives to us his spirit. If we look to something else to provide us freedom, we will be lost. Verse number two in our text today. Mark my words, Paul says. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. If you think it's Jesus and something else, you've lost. You've lost it all. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Thus we put our trust in Christ. This is what God the Father sent his Son to do. This is what God the Father sent the, Son of, the Spirit of his Son to do. To make this freedom possible. This leads to the third way in which Paul speaks of freedom, it is an intimate and open relationship with God the Father. In Christ, God is our Father. We don't have to earn His love. He adopts us through Jesus Christ. My relationship does not depend on my obedience. My acceptance by God does not depend on my obedience. Well, if you think otherwise, we'll look at verse number four. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. If you're trying to win God's favor, it's not going to happen. And in fact, you cannot. You cannot. I was reminded of something Dennis Miller, the comedian, said uh, many years ago. He was talking about one of his sons. And at the age of two or three, his son was acting cute and trying to get attention and, in a sense, being overly cute. And Dennis was like, relax, kid, you got the job. <laughs> you know, we're going to keep you. Um, it may sound a bit crude, but Christians, relax. It is because of what Christ has done that you are the children of God. It is because of God's love that you are the children of God. It's not because of anything that you have done, but it is because of what God has done, is doing, and will do. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in a real sense, and I want to be careful, we should relax. Instead of trying to get God's favor, trying to win brownie points, trying to be cute for God so that God will love us. God loves us. When we hated him, he loved us. And he continues to love us. 
What are we to make, though, of Paul's statement at the end of verse number four? You have fallen away from grace. I mean, we hold to the already not yet that we are the children of God and yet the process has not yet been complete. But does this mean that I can lose the life that God has given me, that God can put his spirit within me and then take his spirit away? I would say no. But if you teach, in fact, that keeping the law, that doing good things, that going to church, reading your Bible, tithing, just make a list of all the good things you can do, that that is going to win you favor with God, that destroys the whole notion of grace. Then, in a sense, you have fallen away from grace. You're no longer talking about grace. The moment you begin to think, or you begin to say, this is what you must do in order for God to love you, you're no longer talking about grace. You've changed arenas. You're no longer in the arena of grace. You've left the stadium, okay? You've left the building. You're talking about something altogether different. And Paul is saying, when you begin to say, you know, we're glad that you're saved, we're glad that you put your faith in Jesus, now you just need to finish the process by being circumcised, Paul's like, no, no, no. You've already left. You're not talking about grace anymore. You're talking about something radically different. It cannot be both and. You know, what Christ has done and my work. It must be either or. I remember Francis Schaeffer saying years ago that if you say it is the work of Christ plus one good work I do, then how do you know it's not two good works or three? or ten, or a hundred, or a thousand. The fact is, once you say Christ plus something, it's no longer grace. You're talking about a different creature altogether. Paul's answer to the Galatians in this passage has three parts. The first is found in verse number one. Stand firm then. I would say this is the already part of the equation. I think the Galatians are really torn. They don't know which way to turn. Paul preached to them the good news of the new age, that God has sent his son into the world. They received it with joy and their lives were transformed. They are different people as a result of coming to faith in Christ. Then some men came from Jerusalem who obviously knew more about the Old Testament than they did. And they told the Galatians, you're lacking something. And no doubt what the men from Jerusalem said made sense. They made a strong case. I think the Galatians were experiencing a type of theological vertigo. If you've ever had vertigo, but it's quite disturbing. Things begin to spin around. And I think that's what the Galatians are going through. And Paul says, stand firm then. Don't turn back to the old ways. Which, by the way, they'd say, well, we're not going to do that. But it's actually the old ways are disguised as a new way called circumcision. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You are already the children of God. God loves you. You don't have to do something to win God's favor. You are the children of God. So the first solution that Paul presents is the already. Stand firm. The second is wait for the not yet. Look if you would at verse number five. But by faith we, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The Galatians were saved. They were the children of God. But in a real sense, they are going to be saved. The righteousness for which we hope. 
The full experience of that has yet to be experienced. This is true of us as well. We are saved. We are going to be saved if we have put our faith in Christ Jesus. We are the sons of God, yet we have yet to experience the fullness of what it means to be the Son of God. And Paul says, wait. And notice, as he puts it, wait for it through the Spirit. Know that it is coming. Yes, we have the already now, so we are to stand firm. But know that the job isn't finished. Not anything that we have to do, but what God will do for us at the end of time. And through the Spirit, we are to wait. This means that I am a child of God now, but I still do things I should not do. And sometimes this is overwhelming, the guilt of it. But I need to remember that the process is not finished. There is the not yet, the righteousness, the righteousness for which we hope. And the third solution that Paul presents is that we are to live lives of faith expressing itself in love. Verse number six. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I don't know if you caught it, but at the end of verse number five, we find hope. And now in verse number six, we have faith and love. That trio of virtues that we read all throughout Paul's writings. Hope, faith, and love. A Christian has faith in Jesus Christ now. And we love him and we belong to him. And we hope, we long for the world that is yet to come. But it is love, it is in love that faith manifests itself. Of the three virtues that Paul speaks of, only one is eternal. Faith will no longer be necessary once we are in the presence of God. Because we will be there. Hope will no longer be necessary because, again, what God intends will have arrived for us. Only love is eternal. Love is that which we find in God before the world was created. And so as God's people, yes, we are to be people of faith and we are to be people of hope. But these are to be expressed in love. Part of the problem, and this is my opinion, is that the men from Jerusalem had no love for the people of Galatia. They had no love for the Galatians. And they were not marked by faith, not marked by hope. It was all about keeping the law. And Paul says, no, you are the people of God. Wait for it. It's coming. Wait for it. The Spirit's in you. Wait for the righteousness that will be revealed. But in the meantime, we are to express our hope and our faith in love. So that one could make a case that if we do not love each other, and if we do not love those made in the image of God, then we do not have faith and we do not have hope. Jesus told his disciples the last night before his death, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. 
That is the virtue that is to mark us as God's people. And that, I think, is what is to be seen in us now in the already and the not yet when we get there and beyond the not yet. We, are to be, we will be people of love. And why is that? Because God is love. And we are his children. We are made in his image. And in the way that God or Christ gave himself freely for us, we are to do that for one another. We are to be marked by love. Let's pray together. Father, if we would be honest, we would prefer that things would be a little, a little simpler, sort of black and white, and the already not yet, that we are your children now and yet we are in process. Um, I think it's hard for us intellectually to get our minds around, but emotionally, uh, you know, we wish it was one or the other. And yet this is the way you've set things up, that... Now the kingdom has come. The kingdom is spreading through us. It's not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. And Christ is in us by your Spirit. He is being formed in us. We are not yet mature. We are not yet perfect. But one day we will be by your grace. Help us to remember that we are your children because of your love and not because of our actions. And that... For that moment, for that time when we think that somehow we have won your favor because of what you have done, or what we have done, we are no longer thinking of grace. We have fallen from grace. And yet I think for many, that is less of a problem than being overwhelmed by guilt. And wondering, how can I be a child of God if I have done such things? Help us to embrace the idea of not yet. That we are already your children, but the process is not yet complete. May we look to you for grace and for forgiveness. And know that in Christ we have both. Above all, as your people, may we be marked by love. Love for you, love for one another, and love for our neighbors. May our faith and hope find expression in our love. May your spirit, he who lives with us, help us in this endeavor. May he guide us. May we look to him for wisdom and guidance. I thank you for this time that we could gather to worship you. We pray for those who will not be with us next week, for Dan and Lonnie as they'll be traveling, that you will give them safety. For those who have celebrated birthdays and who will, uh, for Henry and my mom and others, we give thanks for your grace in their lives. And now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this through Jesus. And in his name. Amen.